J.T. Crowley is Talking Books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. They'll give you their take on the writing process and how to create the secret sauce of page-turning deliciousness. Let's get into that magical mixture of the art and science of creativity. Here's J.T. Crowley, author of The Smart Kids and your podcast host. Hello, everyone. I'm J.T. Crowley. And I'm glad to invite uh, onto my show today, Vaughan Lamont. Um, his book is called The Blues in Blue. And Vaughan describes himself as a black patriotic American man. He presently lives in North Augusta. This is a small town, which you could probably say is almost attached to Augusta itself. But it's a small town in South Carolina, but it's on the state line with Georgia. And it's not far, everybody, from the famous Augusta National Golf Club across the state line in Georgia, where the U.S. golf tournament is held every year. Bourne has done many jobs in his life, uh, from serving in the U.S. Army to being in the state police department to running his own financial services company. To that, you can add church ministry, mentoring, as well as delivering motivational speeches to encourage others to develop their business ideologies, aspirations, and dreams. So as you can see, everyone born has been a very busy, busy, busy person, and he continues to do so. But for the purpose of this podcast, Um, We're going to concentrate, everybody, on his book, The Blues in Blue, which is a book he found difficult to write, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but it's a book he wrote about the experiences he faced, uh, the institutional racism he faced in the three years he served as a state police trooper, law enforcement officer, back in the late 70s, early 80s, not so much by the public, but by the very state police departments he worked for, the hierarchy that was in those departments. The prejudices and injustices he faced left him so traumatised that it's only now, 40 years later, that he's felt he's had the ability to talk about his experiences, what he faced, and put it into a book. And this is why he's written the book. So let's invite Vaughan onto the show to see what he has to say about his book, his life. Vaughan, come and join me. John, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a, it's a tremendous pleasure. And we've had several chit-chats over the days, and I've looked at your book, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, 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 this is an interesting book, everybody. It's coming from a very, very um, interesting angle. Um. Hmm. You know, when I, when I started to work on your podcast here, Vaughan, I thought, where do I go with this? There is so much to go at. There is so much emotion. There is so much interesting facts and your experiences. So it, it's taken me a little while to um, compose this co- uh, podcast and put it together, everybody. So as you get a flavor of Vaughan's life and what his experiences he faced. But the book, Vaughan, is really your own 
personal testament to the institutional racism you face behind the scenes in the various state departments you worked in back in the late 1780s, isn't it? Exactly, it is. And, and uh, yeah, and no, you, say, you say in your book the things that are happening in America today are parallel to what you experienced personally in all those years ago. And you put this down to police training. Do you want to open up here as to why you say it's down to police training? And what were those experiences that you faced? Please tell us. Yes. When I look at the experiences that we've had here in the United States with the police departments over the past few years, going back 10 to 15 years, I remember one case down here in the state of South Carolina in which a police officer had stopped this man. It was a traffic stop. And the man was unarmed, but his, his paperwork was not correct on his vehicle between the registration, the title, and the things weren't right. And a police officer was questioning him. And it got to the point where the man just got out of his car and just took off running away from the police officer, leaving his car right there, the police officer's car behind his, and he started running away. Uh, so the police officer tased him. They shot tasers at him. And what he did was he took the tasers out and threw the tasers uh, um, cords back at the police officer and turned around and continued to run. And then the police officer shot him in the back nine to 11 times. And then when they called for a backup, he got together with the backup officer and they devised a story on the scene of what to say, what actually took place. And they said that the man had taken his, ta taken the taser from him and proceeded to attack the police officer with the taser. But what they were unaware of is that someone was recording everything that happened on his cell phone. And if it wasn't for the recording, they would have got away with it. So you say, why for a traffic stop, a man who's running from the police officer, would he shoot him 10 to 11 times in the back? Nine, I said nine to 11 times in the back. Why not just continue to chase him or say, hey, I'm not going to keep running after him. I don't feel like running. I'll just take his car. I'll have it towed down to where we were impound. I'll hold what paperwork I have and make him come to me. Because that's where I was trained. I'll just make him come to me. I don't have to chase him. But instead, he decides to shoot and kill him over a traffic stop. So when I look at the situation, these, these are the things that compelled me to write my book. Because the training I had told, would have told me, you take his car, you hold this car, you hold whatever documents that you have that he had in the car or that he dropped, you're going to make this man come to you, and you can give him all the tickets you want, but you don't have to kill him over it. But so because that happened, it says, why? What's the core reason? What was taking place in that police officer's mind to make him believe that this man deserved to die over a traffic stop? And it, it takes me all the way back to how I was trained and the things that took place when I was on uh, uh, the state police and the training that were given to us as it, as I had to think about what to do in different situations as to the way I was brought up and in a way that I was personally trained. So that case or that situation is not an isolated case. There's been others that are taking place. There have been cases where uh, a young man was just jaywalking 
and a police officer told him to get on the sidewalk and he continued to come toward the police officer and the police officer shot him. And then while he's running away from the police officer, the police officer continued to shoot. There's been a recent case in California where a young man was just walking home and he went from left to right instead of from right to left at the corners and the two police officers saw him, thought he should have went another direction. So both of these police officers wrestled him in the street to try to make him go back and go another direction and they shot him. So why should somebody get shot for jaywalking? Why should somebody get shot for stepping off the curb? Why should someone get shot because of a traffic stop? Why should someone get shot even over a $20 bill? So the core of it is not that, well, these police officers are right, the, 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 the person was wrong, and they had to handle it the best way. The best way is not to even to pull your pistol in these simple situations. You can de-escalate the situations. You can give the person a ticket. You can tell them what to do. And if you handle it correctly, they'll be saying thank you to you. Like I've had happen to me when I was a police officer. I gave people tickets for traffic and talk with them. And they're telling me thank you. <laughs> At the end of the stop, they got to pay a fine. And they're thanking me for giving them the ticket. It was because of the way I handled the situation. So there's ways in which you can de-escalate it. But the problem is it goes back to the core of how they have been trained. Just like it was back to the core of how I was trained as a police officer. If the training is wrong, your response is going to be wrong. And, and it's going to trigger going all the way back to what's in your psyche. And that's what the problem is. I see. Um, Vaughn, you grew up in and around uh, Wilmington in the U.S. state of Delaware. In the uh, book under the uh, section Substitute Teacher to Police Academy, you give the reader a brief outline of your life before joining the police and a glimmer of what happened while you were at the police academy. Would you tell the listeners you know, your views here and a little more about what happened at the police academy to you? Yes. Um, you know, without giving too much away, because don't give the book away, because that's the whole point. This is just to give you all a flavor, everybody, about what his book is about. Do you want to open up here? Sure. Yeah, when, when I went on, well, I, I was going to, I just got into work one day. And uh, as a substitute teacher, and I came into office to get my office mail, and a call came in for me. And it was a state police officer recruiter and called me, told me that they were uh, uh, recruiting and asked, was I interested? And I told him no. He said, well, won't you still meet with me? And invited me to come meet with him that weekend at a particular troop. And when I did, I talked with him face to face and uh, I decided, all right, I'll go ahead and join. And I went through all the preliminary steps for to go into the police department. He had several different types of training that you had to go through. You had to go through the physical agility. Uh, and I was in a good physical condition. At that, I was only like 21, 22 years old, so I was in a good physical condition. And, uh, and I was athletic. Uh, then we had, uh, they had a psychological test that you had to pass. You had a written test you had to pass. Uh, you, had, uh, you had to meet with a polygrapher to take a polygraph test. And we had to pass all these. And then once you, the time came for to go into the academy, then it was the real awakening. And in our class, we had uh, just four black officers 
out of about a total of about 40 or so officers there because half of the class were uh, people trained for the different municipalities and the other half were training for the state police. But it was still, it was only four of us there. And so and it was tough. The, the, the training of it itself was very tough between uh, the physical as well as the mental. Because it was like going, uh, uh, it was like going to Paris Island or going to West Point while at the same time going through the most grueling physical training at the same time. And once you complete and pass, and then they give you an assignment, and when they give you an assignment, they send you out to different troops. And the troop that they sent me to, they'd only had one black officer there total since that troop had been in existence, and he had only been there for 30 days. And after that, they shipped him someplace else. And they were sending me to this particular troop, so uh, I, I I didn't know what to expect since the only other officer had been there before the only last 30 days. I said, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but I'm, I'm open. Like, I don't know what's going to take place. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know if they haze them to the point he couldn't take it any longer or what. But, all right, this is where we're going to go. And that was my beginning. I see. Um, what was it like, Vaughn, in your first year on the job? Um, and when I looked at, there's a certain a phrase that you've put in the book here, Punch and Judy. And it was interesting, that came from a pastor, wasn't it? So, yes, it did. Yeah, and I think, well, that's an interesting point. And I'll let you explain what Punch and Judy is, because I'm not. So I think the listeners might be interested about the conscious decisions that were being taken by the hierarchy because of your skin color in that first year. Do you yes. want to tell us all about your first year? Then you yes. can what Punch and Judy is. <laughs> all right. I, uh, the first year was challenging, and which I think the thing that really helped me was my aggressiveness toward doing the job and doing it correct. Uh, you spend like your first uh, only about two to three weeks work with another officer to train you. You, know, you come out of the academy with green as we could be, and then you get out on the road with another officer. You work with an officer only about two weeks, and then you're on your own. And when, uh, and there was about, I think it was about five of us from out of the academy that worked in that troop also. They, you know, we all came out of the same class together. And, uh, and they all had different officers that they worked with. So I'm out there being aggressive, doing my job, learning, making mistakes, picking myself up, continuing to go on because you're, you're, you're learning. And then one day I was just sitting on the side of the road because I had a lot of paperwork. I wasn't used to this. I hadn't done this before. So I had a lot of reports all the time. And I'm sitting down in a parking lot just working on my reports. And uh, um, the chaplain comes around. He says, Vaughn, how are you doing? I said, doing great. Doing great, sir. And he just begins to talk to me about the job. And while he's talking to me about the job, he goes in his phrase about punch and Judy. Now, I never heard this before. He said, punch represents the alcoholic beverages that the police officers are drinking. And Judy represents the women. He said, because when you put on a uniform, the women are going to come after you. And he said, a lot of officers get snared by getting with the wrong women. A lot of mothers get snared by going becoming alcoholics. He says, so you got to keep your eyes open and watch yourself. Don't, you know, be given the drink to the point where you're becoming an alcoholic. 
And don't get with the wrong woman because the wrong woman can get destroy you, especially with this job. So, okay, sir, yes. And I mean, I, I took it as being good advice and smart advice. And then he went on to say, you know, Vaughn, the other officers are not spending time helping you with your paperwork or even teaching the ropes on their job as they are the other officers. And they know what they're doing. And, you know, but you just continue on and you continue to work hard. And if you need someone to talk to about the things you're going through, you can give me a call and we can talk anytime. And I just listened to him and said, yes, sir. And it was a shock to me because I just thought that the other officers act the way they did just because that's how they were. I didn't know that they were intentionally not helping me, helping the other rookie officers, but not helping me on purpose. And as time went on, I could be in a troop with three or four or five reports that I'm working on. And we get to the point where I'm staying over an hour, hour and a half after I get off or coming in an hour early to try to get caught up on all the reports as, a, as trying to learn the paperwork. And I could be sitting in the back of the troop, filling them out and going through them. And then other officers like detectives will come in and say, hey, Vaughn, how you doing? What you doing? I'm filling out paperwork. Oh, okay. All right. And when asked me these redundant questions, like, what are you doing? Like, you can see what I'm doing. I'm writing, you know, I'm putting pen to paper. And, they would, and then they go talk to somebody else and somebody else go back. Hey, Vaughn, how, what, what, what's going on, Lamont? And it was almost like, it made me feel like I was in a cage and they're just watching me like, look at the guy in the cage. Look, what is he doing? Like, is this if I was just an animal in the zoo and they're just coming back watching me? Like somebody had him a bag of popcorn while they watched me write reports. And, and this is what I had, I had to deal with, and I had to learn through this, and I had to learn, come in. You know, one day I came in early. I came in, my shift just starts at 7, so I came in at 6 o'clock to try to get caught up on the paperwork. And the person, the, the sergeant was behind the desk, was from a sergeant from another shift. He wasn't on my shift. Someone came in, the troop, because they had an accident. He gave me that accident report from his shift, and I already came in early to try to get caught up on the report I had, work I had. Now he's giving me more work instead of calling in one of his officers from his shift to handle the accident. I'm like, well, how can I get caught up? And I mean, I'm new, so I can't go, hey, you can't, hey, guy, look. I just had to go ahead and start taking the accident report. And to my sergeant came in, sergeant said, what are you doing? I said, I was in here trying to get caught up on paperwork, and he gives me an accident to take. So my sergeant had to go deal with him so he can go call one of his officers in. But it was, it was just, it was really a challenge at first, during that first year, to be able to learn how to really write faster or think even another way of getting through all the work that was being put on me without getting the assistance that I needed for those who were there really to be able to help. Because of your color of your skin. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Vaughn, why was it so important to you um, to put in the sections in your book, Turfing and National Guard's connection to DSP? Now, DSP, everybody, is the Department for State, sorry, is the Delaware State Police. Yes. Why did you put these sections in the book? What relevance are they to you and the book? Well, <laughs> a 
A lot of I've learned about surfing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For those who are listening, surfing is when you take your vehicle and go and make like figure eights on the grass instead of, you know, out, out on snow and you can make figure eights in the snow or you can make angels in the snow. Surfing is if you're on grass and got a car and you're spinning your wheels and cutting up the grass. And there was, there was a, there's a section in on surfing because there was a, there was a guy that I caught a young man of 16 years old and he was out with his brothers and sisters and they went to a church parking lot and they decided they're going to do some surfing and they just destroyed the church's lawn. It was pathetic. They had to get towed so, off, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. <laughs> I mean, they, they ended up in family court. Turning out their dad was one of the best attorneys in the state of Delaware. So it was a situation. That's why I brought that one in. And, yes. they, um, and of course, there are times that, you know, you're um, high, you know, people, you know, above you really didn't support you because you're part of the um, U.S. Army and they were not very helpful to you, were they? When you they were trying weren't. to manage, you know, being a policeman and in the Army. Yes. I was, I was in Army National Guards. And I was doing well. And I had an opportunity to become um, a second lieutenant, which once you get the rank of a lieutenant, you can go back in full-time in Army, or Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, anyone you want to, and you will still retain your rank of being a lieutenant. So I was going through that training at the same time. I was doing very well in the training. I was fourth in my class. So, and I was enjoying myself, and I was really gung-ho. And uh, one training, uh, uh, well, yeah, it was a training two-week time period. And on this time period, we went down to the uh, 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 lower part of Delaware during the training. And my colonel from the state police, who was also in the National Guards, he came down this weekend. He was colonel in state police. He was a colonel in the National Guards also at the time. And... I was the, uh, when he came in, when I saw him, I was a person out front carrying the flag. I was doing great. I was doing fantastic. He trained us for a couple of the courses uh, uh, that particular weekend. But after that weekend was over and after we went back, he sent out a memo to the Delaware State Police. And the memo basically said National Guards and, uh, and Reserves is allowable and acceptable. But any extracurricular activity is unacceptable, which meant that they had to give me a Saturday and Sunday each month, one Saturday, one Sunday. But because I was in the officer, you know, OIC officer uh, training course, they required me to come in on Fridays and Saturday and Sunday, and they're looking to you to work with, they're looking for your employer to work with you. They were looking for employers to work with us they gave us off on their Friday because they wanted to spend more time with us, more training, more preparation. And when this memo went out on the state police, my sergeant said, well, Lamont, did you see this memo? No, we don't have to give you off on the Fridays anymore. We don't, I don't know why. If you get somebody to switch with you, okay. But no, we do not have to give you that Friday to go in anymore. And it was, and, and this memo came straight from the Colonel's office. So, that really challenged me, and I went to go back to them. I really, I, I tried to stay in, but I found myself getting further, and further behind 
because of not being able to came on those Fridays, and then it just got to the point where just, I just had to, I just had to let it go, and it just it really disturbed me. So, and not only did it disturb me, it disturbed it disturbed my leaders in Officer Canada School. So I went one day and just talked face to face with my major in in the uh, Officer Canada School's uh, uh, office. He said, Lamont, I don't understand it. He said, I do not understand why this is happening to you. He said, you know, he said, you're a colonel. The state police is a colonel here in, in the military. And he came down there to your training. I don't understand why he would even put out a memo that would stop you. It doesn't make any sense to me. I said, I don't understand either. He said, well, listen, I sent the command sergeant major over to his house to ask him, to talk to him regarding the situation. Now, I didn't know he did this. He was explaining to me he did this on my behalf. I didn't ask him to do this. But he said the command sergeant major to go over to his house to talk to him specifically about me and the school and staying in there. And he told me that when the command sergeant major went to the colonel's house, he said he knocked on the door. And he said, who is it? He said, it's so-and-so, the command sergeant major. I'm here to talk to you about Lamont. He said, and he said he wouldn't open the door for him. He just said through the door, I'll handle our state police business, and you handle the Army business. And and this, that was it. So I'll handle the state police business, and you handle the Army business, and wouldn't talk to him. And this guy, the major that was talking to me said, this man is a friend of his, a friend. But he wouldn't open the door to talk to him regarding to me. Hmm. Mm. Um, I want to move on a little bit here. A fair portion of the book comes under the drug unit section, doesn't it? Yes. Where, where you operated undercover trading and dealing with drug gangs. Yes. For me, I think this was a defining moment in your life, especially around the firearms training you received, particularly the words... Um, yes. the range sergeant used, and the yes. psychological impact those words had on you. Are you able to talk to us about this? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And this, this, this is challenging, and this is probably the reason why it took me all these years to write this book. paper and write about this because the things that happen, sometimes you bury them. And, and and everybody deals with things differently. Some people can cry things out, you know. Some people can sit down with a psychiatrist or a psychologist and, and just, or a social worker and just discuss things and talk it out and talk it out or with their pastor until they get it out of the system. But I just bear these things, and they, it just changed my character, changed my personality. And I would never tell anybody the real reasons why I left the state police. But I was doing very well at this point out on highway patrol and handling reports and getting my reports done in a timely manner and everything's going fine and working hard with traffic arrests and my criminal arrests and uh, drug one influence arrests. And I was just doing great on the job. Then on just at this point, about two years. And then one day, uh, the drug unit sergeant came into the troop and I was sitting behind the desk doing desk sergeant duty. And he came in early that morning and he told me to go ahead and put in a request to uh, come into his unit. 
And so I did. And right away, they picked me. So after they picked me to come in, uh, I had been trained like on a long barrel Smith & Weston six-shooter mm -hmm. pistol. And the type of pistol that we would carry while working undercover is a much shorter barrel. They call it a snub-nosed pistol. And so I had to go down to the academy, and they scheduled me to go down to go through the training course on a, on a shorter barrel pistol. So we go down, and, and, and there was different officers from different departments. Some may have been detectives. Who knows what they were, what they were sent there to do. But I was the only one that was sent there that was working in the drug unit. And I was the only black officer there at this time also. So the officer talks to us. He talks to us about if you shoot someone and we go to court, they're going to ask you, how did you shoot? Why did you shoot them? And you tell them that we're, you're shooting for center mass, you're shooting for the core, and you're shooting to incapacitate. You're not shooting to kill them. You're shooting to incapacitate. And they went through good courtroom preparation. Next, we go out onto the rifle range, I mean the pistol range. When we get out on the pistol range, we all have targets in front of us that we're going to shoot. The targets are a very large rectangular cardboard piece of paper with a black silhouette of a person in the center. And we're to shoot for center mass of that black silhouette. So the sergeant's behind us. We're all standing there at our post. He says, ready line clear, clear on the left, clear on the right, clear the center. All right, let's shoot these niggers. Fire. And when he said that, everybody started shooting. I stood there and I pointed at the target until my hand even began to shake because his words were going on in my head. If I pull the trigger, then I'm shooting not just at the target. I'm shooting at niggers. I'm shooting at black people. I'm shooting at myself even. And, and it just started, it started getting to me. Then I just went ahead and rapid fired this. Bow, 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 bow. And just to get it out. Then I went over to him. I said, shoot these niggers? He looked back at me with a grin on his face like it was a joke, like it was funny to him. He said, Lamont, one guy from your troop a couple weeks ago put an eyes, ear, nose, and mouth, fingers, and watermelon in the fingers on his target. So that let me know that this is not just a joke. It's a part of his training. They're training them. And that one particular person made his target look personally like what he wanted to shoot at. He made it become alive, a black person. And that's the way they were being trained. Right. Um, that's why I brought this up. And that's why I want to put this in onto the podcast. So I thought it was very important. That was probably the defining moment why you probably left um, the state police department um, soon afterwards. But I wanted to talk about uh, another ordeal you faced, which at the time you didn't probably see the full picture. And that is how the state police colonel in the time treated you. You say in your book, now at this point in time, it's apparent to me in looking back that the state police colonel was trying to manipulate and destroy my career in the army as well as the state police. You've already touched yes. on this. Do you believe it was the case? Yes. Um, I, was, like, I was in the National Guards, and he was in the Guards also. So mm -hmm. we're both guardsmen 
were both state policemen. And he had stopped me from being able to move forward in the National Guard becoming an officer. Now, after this incident occurred, I, had, I didn't even go any further as far as trying to pursue the department to deal with that sergeant. I, uh, I went to the police gym and I met up with a couple of the black officers just by chance. You know, I didn't schedule a meeting with them just by chance. And uh, I told them what happened on the range and they had a fit about it. And they were older officers. They'd been on maybe like five years when I had only been on like two. And they had a fit about it. They were, man, they were highly upset about this. So time went on and I get a call one day to come down to the training academy. And I had to meet with the academy captain and he did an interview with me, asking me about everything that occurred. And I just answered his questions, told him everything that happened, told him everything that took place, told him all that took place while I was down there for that particular training. And then a time goes by to hear anything else back from him. We did an interview. That was it. I didn't hear anything else. Then as time went on, the uh, colonel went from troop to troop to do an inspection. When he got to my troop, all the officers came down into like an open bay area and we had a seat and he's talking about the state of affairs of the Delaware state police. And then he openly says before everyone, the situation with officer Lamont and what so to so uh, the range sergeant, uh, we removed the range sergeant and we're putting him in a different department because of the situation that took place with him with officer Lamont. And everybody started turning around and looking at me with these hard, hateful looks. I wish at that point I could have turned into a little fly and just went in a corner on the wall. I mean, and, I mean, it's not like a normal job where you have a situation and you go to HR and they handle it. Well, in this job, everybody wears a pistol or carries a rifle. <laughs> so when everybody is looking at you with anger and they all have a pistol on their hip, it could be a bit antsy. And he wanted everybody to know that there was a situation. We removed the sergeant, and it was because of Lamont. That's the reason why he's been removed. So he was just putting it out there. I'm letting everybody know. I'm letting everyone know. Mm. You're the situation now. So that was a challenge. And from that point on in my career on the job was a challenge. Because after this thing happened, I wasn't planning on leaving. I was planning on staying and sticking it out. I'd already had to stick out. No one helped me when I first started on the job. So tougheners had been put in me from an early part on the job. I was planning on sticking this out, but they started coming after me. They really started coming after me. Is that where you talk about in your book? It says, uh, watch your back. They're talking about you. Figures of your time in the book. That's, you've, you've mentioned that a few times in the book. Yes. When I, when I just got ready, when I, in other words, when they first started calling me to go out and do drug deals, because I was still working in highway patrol, but they would call me and ask me, uh, Juan, you know, we, 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 you know, we're going to be doing some drug busts. We're going to go and be doing some drug buys. We'd like to know you come out with us, dress a certain, such a way, come on out and, uh, 
it's going to be, that was their introduction to me to learn how to work with the drug unit, to learn how to go out and do drug buys, and to give the office a chance to fill me out as well as me to learn them. Well, I just started doing this, and then I got a call one day from a friend of mine, very close friend. Him and I had gone into Army together down here at Fort Gordon. That's right. In Augusta. You know, and I mean, I, I known this guy since I was 16 years old. He's about five years older than me. We're good friends. He was his date with one of my uh, 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 female cousins. So we were, we were just buddies. And he calls me up one day and says, Vaughn, look. He said, my brother to, has called me to tell you to watch your back. So he works with these drug officers. And he, and he listens to them, and they don't know that he knows you. And they're telling him, they're talking about you in front of him. They're jealous of you. You're moving up too fast. They want to get rid of you. Watch your back. Watch your back. Now, this was a directive. His brother, okay, the brother he was talking about was also a friend of mine, but he was a criminal, and he was a drug dealer, and he was a tough guy. He was a bad guy, but him and I were friends. And he was take them out, and they would, he was set up for them to do drug buys. And later I found out that he was even a bodyguard for one of the officers that was a county officer. But, however, and they all worked in the drug unit together. But he listened to them talking about me, saying my name, talking about me. They didn't know that he knew me. They, he, they didn't know that him and I were friends. So he called and told his brother, the one I went to the Army with, his brother called, called and told me. And this was right in the beginning when I just started working drug deals with him. said, they're out to get you. They don't like you. They're jealous of you. You're moving up too fast. Watch your back. And was that down to the color of your skin, you think? I think it was because there were other black officers that worked in a drug unit, but the black officers were county officers. They weren't, they weren't state police officers. They were county police officers, and there was one from a municipality. And they had had black officers in the drug units before, but there weren't any in there at the time. Matter of fact, when I had gone to the gym that day and, 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 I, and I talked to a couple of officers about the things that had happened, one of them had been in a drug unit in the past. He had been there before. But there was none in there at the time. Now I was the new guy to come in. And these guys were like, Lamont, ugh. They were out to get me. So moving up too fast, being too aggressive or whatever. I don't know. I was doing a good job. But they wanted to get rid of me. I want to just lighten the mood here a bit here. Um, born on a lighter note, do you play golf? <laughs> now, considering there's a major golf course just down the road from you, do you play golf? <laughs> no, I don't. They have the oh, Masters down God. here in Augusta, and, and I have never been on the Masters golf course. I have never been there. And, I'm, I, and I remember even back when I was in the Army, they would give us off a couple of days during the time of the Masters because some of the officers would go to the Masters tournament. And, uh, but no, I, I don't play golf. There you go, everyone. He doesn't play golf. Yeah, he's got a major golf club down the road from him. Um, we've talked, and 
Your final year in school, you met someone, didn't you? A young US senator. <laughs> Who was that senator? And what did he talk to you about? <laughs> In 19, now I graduated from high school in 1974. Yeah. In 1973, when I was in 11th grade, there, there was a person that they had to come in to do the commencement address. And I was sitting right up front. And that senator was Joe Biden. And this was 1973. And he was a young senator. And he had just gone through such terrible calamities in his, in his, in his life at that time. And, uh, but he was, he was strong, he was resilient, and he gave an excellent speech. And I never forgot him from that point. There you go. And But you didn't think then he was going to be a future U.S. president of the United States, did you? Never. <laughs> never thought. There you go. Uh, Vaughn, where can people get your book? And who do you think is your target market? But what I also want to ask you is, why is the title Blues and Blues? Because that's significant, isn't it? The color blue here. It's significant because my story is the blues about what it was like to be on the police department. Yeah. My story is the blues. The blue is the uniform. The blues is the story. And you have to read my book to be able to see the rest of my thoughts as regarding to how this bitter situation could have a sweetness at the end. Okay. You would have to read it. It's not just I've read it. It's not, <laughs> <laughs> it's not just the blues. It's not just the sad story. You nice. know. So where can people get your book? Where can they well, get your book? You can go to www.vaughnlemon.com and my name is V-A-U-G-H-N-L-E-M-O-N. You go to www.vaughnlemon.com. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it on eBay. Uh, all these places online, you can get my book. You can go to elibris.com also. Wonderful. Vaughn Lemon, thank you for coming on this show and sharing your experiences about the racism, the institutional racism that you faced whilst you were a, a law enforcement officer back in the late 70s and early 80s. The short book, everybody, is fascinating to read, although it does have some uh, worrying aspects to it, which Bourne has put in. But, you know, that was, that was his days when he was a state um, trooper. But it's, you know, and as I said, I'm going to emphasise this, this is Vaughan's personal views in his book here. Nevertheless, it's well worth a read, everybody. So thank you, Vaughan, for coming on, for giving me the thank great you. opportunity to talk to you, to interview, to get to know you. It's been a real privilege. Vaughan Lamont. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm JT Crowley, everybody. And as I say every week, thanks for listening, watching, wherever you are in the world. Until next time, stay safe. Mm-hmm.